All right. Thank you for the freedom that I have to preach this message. Uh, this message would get me fired at probably two out of four churches uh, in a Nazarene denomination, in a Baptist denomination, in many denominations. Thank you for the freedom that I have to be able to preach this message. And if I don't have the, the freedom that I think I do, then Pastor Nathan will be your senior pastor next week, I guess. Black Lives Matter. We can all agree on that. We're all created in the image of God. And the church light is right, red, yellow, black, and white. We're all created in the image of God. So black lives matter. And I don't see how you can be a Christian without agreeing on that. Black lives matter. And what is also true, that is equally as true as black lives matter, is that all lives matter. It's equally as, as true. All lives matter, and that's a great umbrella over top of the fact that black lives matter. But sometimes, even though it's true that all lives matter, sometimes because of the history of our country, we, we know that with, with some different people, there have been some injustices. There have been some inequities. All lives matter, but as you look at some people, there, it seems like some matter more than others. Like for all of us in this room, we would say, unborn lives matter. Every one of us would say that. Every single one of us would say that. Because we all know there have been some injustices. There are inequities with the unborn life. And and one of the most dangerous places that you can be in the United States is in a mother's womb. And so if, if we are out proclaiming that unborn lives matter and someone comes along and say it that's pro-abortion and says, no, unlives, unborn lives don't matter, you should say that all lives matter, we wouldn't like that, would we? Because we know there is a particular group under all lives matter that there have been some injustices. There have been some inequities. The the plain history of this country has told us that unborn lives do not matter as much as other lives do. And so we would just despise it if people say, you shouldn't say unborn lives matter. You should say all lives matter. Because we feel we need to point out this one subset of all lives matter. We need to point it out because there's injustices there. Apply that to black lives matter. There's not a rational thinking person under the sound of my voice in this sanctuary that's listening on the internet, not a rational thinking person, not a person that's intellectually honest that can say through the 240 year history of this country, you can say that you you would not be able to say that black lives has mattered as much as white lives. Can't be intellectually honest and say that. And I know slavery is over and, and we're not in, in slave times uh, anymore. But as you continue to go past slavery and you continue to come into the late 1800s and you come into the 1900s and so forth and so on, you still have to look at the history of the United States. And even though all lives matter, you would have to say, if you're intellectually honest, that black lives has not always mattered as much. Even in the Constitution of the United States, Blacks were counted as three-fifths of a human being. Interesting, after you have all men are created equal, you have paragraphs that count blacks as three-fifths of a human being. (laughs) So, unless you're intellectually dishonest, and as you look back at the 240-year history of this country, you have to say that black lives have not mattered as much as other lives as So you understand our black friends, when they get bent out of shape, when some people in the white community say, well, you shouldn't say black lives matter because all lives matter. But our black friends say that, that, no, there's been some particular injustices done to us. And we should be able to understand that because we understand the injustices that have been done to the unborn. Some of us get a little bit out of shape at Christmas time and, and because everybody's now saying season greetings and happy holidays. And if we came out with some big campaign that says Christmas matters. 
And somebody says, you shouldn't say Christmas matters. You should say all holidays matter. Now, we would laugh at that because we understand, we feel, maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong, but we feel Christmas is treated differently than some other holidays, and it's getting kind of excluded and not what it means to. And so we want to highlight the problems there is with Christmas. So we say Christmas matters, and we don't like it when other people say, all holidays matter. You shouldn't say that. All holidays matter. You get what I'm getting at, friends? No matter where we stand on this issue, if you're intellectually honest, you have to admit that African Americans' lives have not mattered. Oh, they matter to God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the history of the United States, they have not mattered as much as other lives have mattered. You can stick your head in the sand and not talk about it like the church lady. You can have an understanding or you can be intellectually honest. So we can agree that black lives matter. All people are created in the image of God. We can agree to that. And we can also agree that Throughout the 240-year history of this country, we have example after 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 example example of times when black lives didn't matter as much. And if you're intellectually honest, you agree with that. And some people will say, well, you know, it's a different time back then. You know, it's not that we were racist. It was just different back then. It was our culture. Um, People are quick to say, I'm not racist. And what's the next word? But. I've heard that in this church, by the way. But it it was just the way I was raised. I understand the way you were raised. I really do, because I was raised that way. I was raised that way. My father told me a story of when uh, his, his dad, my grandfather, Papa, was walking down Wood Street in Lexington, Kentucky, and, and uh, Papa was walking, Dad was walking, and here walked a, a, a black friend of Dad's, and, and Dad says, hey, whatever his name was, and Papa says, don't you speak to him. I understand about culture. Some of you young people can't even imagine that, can you? We've, we've come a ways. It's better than it used to be. Uh, we all admit that. Intellectually honest people will have to admit it's better than it used to be. I have that in my background. My Uncle Tater died. I don't know what Tater's real name was. We just knew him as Tater. You have an Uncle Tater in your family? Uh, you probably do. Uncle Tater died. And as we were going through Uncle Tater's stuff, we found gobs of KKK material. I understand about culture. I understand about history. I get that. It's in my history. In my lifetime, 1976, when I graduated from from Lafayette High School, 40 years ago this year, when I graduated from Lafayette High School, do you know we had a white hallway and we had a black hallway and white people didn't walk down the black hallway and black people didn't walk down the white hallway before school when we were all hanging out and being cool? That's, that's my generation, friends. That's my generation. I hesitate to tell you this, but it's too good of an example. I need to. My dear sweet mother is, is uh, you know, she's out to Elmcroft. She's not able to come to church very often. She's a sweet lady. She's going to heaven. She would just cringe if, if she knew. If I brought this up today, she would just cringe that I would remind her of this, and she would be so embarrassed. But it's a, such a good example, I have to tell you. Please don't look down on her if, she, if when she comes to church again. She sang a lullaby to me 
when I was four or five. Oh, Mr. Moon, Moon, great big silver moon, shining behind that tree. There's a great big nigger with a big shotgun. He's going to get you if you don't get up and run. Oh, Mr. Moon, Moon, great big silver moon, won't you please shine down on me? Why did she sing that to me? Probably because her mother sang it to her. And why did my grandmother sing it to my mother? Probably because her mother sang it to her. I understand about culture. I, I, I understand about that. When we went to plant a church in Stockbridge, Georgia, we were looking for some temporary housing before we bought a home, and we were looking in apartments, and, and, and one gentleman in my church, about 60 years old, and we were looking up, up into the Mount Zion area of Stockbridge, and this gentleman said, um, be careful, it's a little dark up there. 2000, Stockbridge, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta. I understand about the way you're brought up. I understand about culture. I understand about history. I understand about being a product of your times. But listen, there comes a day and a time when you realize that the way you brought up was not right. Your culture was not right. If you are a product of your time was not right, you've got to call it as it is and say it was wrong. Even if it was your mother, even if it was your father, even if it was your grandmother, or even if it was your grandfather, you've got to say it was wrong so you don't perpetuate it to the next generation. You've got to. And I stand before you with, with immense love in my heart for my parents and my grandparents and all of my family. Immense love as much as you have for yours. But they were wrong. So stop with the culture stuff. Stop with the product of your time stuff. I've done as much research for this message as I have for any message that I've ever preached. Uh, besides all the reading and the biblical reading I've done and, and reading on articles so forth and so on, I, I talked to four black friends in Xenia this week. Uh, three in Xenia, one outside of Xenia. Uh, two were black pastors, one was a black government official, and one was a physician in a nearby town. All Christian. And spent probably an hour and a half with each one. I also spoke with four white police officers. Law enforcement officers. They all weren't police. Law enforcement officers. All Christian. Four white law enforcement officers, all Christian. Four white um, black folks, all Christian you would be shocked how the white folks disagree with the black folks. How their perception is totally different. I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. I'm saying that these four Christian black folks and these four Christian white folks do not see this whole Black Lives Matter thing at all in the same way. We have a problem, friend. And I'm not saying which one's right. I'm just saying the perception here, they're not jiving. When I was speaking with one of, the, of, of my black pastor friends, sharp guy, educated guy, not, not, not a guy that's like a militant or trying to find a, a racism and ever under every little stone, nothing at all like that. Nothing at all like that. I told him, I said, I, I said, I really, really would like to be able to talk about this issue openly and honestly with much, with much transparency. I, I, I would like to sit down with, my, with, with black folks and just be gut level honest. And when I see places where the black community needs to be criticized, I want to say that without being called a racist. And he says something to me that no one else has ever said to me before. And he says, why are you afraid to be called a racist? I thought it was a pretty stupid question, to be quite honest with you. It, the answer should be self-evident on that, shouldn't it? 
I mumbled through some answer. He said, Mark, are you a Christian? And I said, yes. He says, that means you're a sinner saved by grace. Is that true? And I said, yes. He says, Mark, is racism sin? And I said, yes, it is. He says, Mark, can God forgive the sin of racism? I says, of course he can. I said, Mark, do you, do you ask God to, to, to continue to work with you on other sins that you have in your life? Do you have an accountability group where you talk to uh, other men and confess your short, shortcomings and sins? And, and I said, yes, I do. He says, why is racism this big end-all sin? Why is it this big end-all sin? The blood of Jesus Christ can forgive racism just like it forgives anything. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you and take you away from a, a, a racist and a prejudice and, 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 and that type of past just like anything. He says, as a black person, he said, he says, we're all racist. He says, we're all prejudiced. We all have bias. Why can't we just admit it? Why, why do we have to say, well, I'm not prejudiced, but. He said, Mark, Jesus died for that. Mark, you, you, you'll admit if you have a gossip problem. Mark, you'll admit if you have a pornography problem. Mark, you'll admit if you have an adultery problem. Mark, you'll admit if you have a lying problem. Mark, you'll admit if you have a problem with not paying your tithes. Mark, you'll admit if you have a problem with not treating your wife right. Why won't we come to grips with racism? Why is it the big number one sin of all time that no one will come clean? Uh, he shook me to my bones. I have racist tendencies. I do. I have thoughts that go through my mind that I wish wouldn't. I have prejudice. I have bias. Jesus is working with me on that. Jesus is working with me on that. Just like he's working with me on a lot of other sins. And if we'll never come, if, if you never admit you have a pornography problem, you'll never take care of it. If you never uh, admit you have a marijuana problem, a, a heroin problem, an alcohol problem, you, the first step for any problem is to admit that you have it. And if we keep saying, I'm not prejudiced, but I'm not racist, but why can't we just come to grips with the fact, especially those of us that are older? God bless my little 11-year-old Levi. He said to me one day, we had knowledge for 26 months, little, uh, little black boy as a foster child. We had him for 26 months in our home, almost got to adopt him. And we were talking about things, and Levi was, you know, a little older than knowledge at that time. But Levi goes, knowledge was black? <laughs> Praise God for innocence. Which that statement tells you that racism, prejudice, is taught. It's taught. My whole approach to this racism issue, and not only racism, but to a lot of things in life, changed when I watched Driving Miss Daisy. If you've never seen Driving Miss Daisy, go rent it this afternoon. It's a marvelous movie on a lot of accounts. It teaches you a lot about how it was in 1960s Deep South and in the, in the, in the racial tension. But it's just a good movie, even if it didn't have anything about race in it. It's good. It's funny. It'll make you have, you'll have belly laughs and you'll cry. Go rent it today. Driving Miss Daisy, Miss Daisy is an elderly Jewish lady who has gotten past the age where her son feels like she needs to drive on her own. And so he hires a black chauffeur named Hope. And so the movie's about this relationship between this elderly black, a white elderly Jewish lady and Hope, who was 60s, 70s throughout the movie. And so... Miss Daisy is a wealthy person, and being a wealthy person, she gets invited to a fundraiser, and this is a Martin Luther King fundraiser. 
and Martin Luther King was just, now, was just starting the movement back in the early 60s. And so as a wealthy person who can give a lot of money, she's invited to this fundraiser. And this clip you'll see from Driving Miss Daisy is, is Miss Daisy walking into the fundraiser while her chauffeur, Hoke, elderly black guy, sits out in the car. She hears Dr. Martin Luther King live. He listens to Dr. King on the radio. That's what this clip is about. Listen to Dr. King's words that change the way I think about race, but also change the way I think about a lot of things. Please, Darren. And see that the South has marvelous possibilities. Yet in spite of these assets, segregation has placed the whole South socially, educationally, and economically behind the rest of the nation. Yet there are in the white South millions of people of goodwill whose voices are yet unheard, whose course is yet unclear, and whose courageous acts are yet unseen. These millions are called upon to gird their courage to speak out, to offer leadership that is needed. History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and indifference of the good people. Our generation will have to repent not only for the words and acts of the children of darkness, but also for the fears and apathy of the children of light. Did you hear that statement? That the worst thing about the Deep South was not the bad people, not the actions of the bad people. It was the appalling apathy and silence of the good people. And this country will have to repent not only for the acts of the children of darkness, but for the silence of the children of light. The only thing that it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to be quiet. Shook me to my roots on about a lot of different issues. And now I speak up and speak out more than I ever have before on a lot of different issues because I'm just not going to be quiet anymore. I was, a, I was a coward before. Like some of you are. You don't like to ruffle feathers, do you? You don't like the conflict. You're a good person. Just like I was. I was, I was raised in a good family. Really good family. We paid our bills on time. We, we, we attended Central United Methodist Church. Uh, uh, my mom sang in the choir. And she taught Sunday school. And we paid our bills on time. And, 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 and dad showed up to work on time. And, and, and in the neighborhood there at Wood Street, we, 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 were, we were good neighbors to people. And, and we were just good people. Good people, just like you, good people. We were so good that we would have never, ever used a racial slur. I would have never looked at a black person and said, you nigger. Never would have done that. But we didn't call out the people that did. And many of you didn't either. The appalling apathy and silence of the good people is what Dr. King was talking about. You see, I, we were good people, raised in a good family, raised with good morals, good values. We could, we could recite the books of the Bible. We knew the Bible stories. We knew all of those. We, we, we grew up in a time where, where, where integration came to Lexington and to Louisville with all the problems that, uh, of trying to be able to integrate the schools. And there were, there were rallies. There were segregation rallies. Some of you that are older remember those. Those of you, those of you that don't, segregation is, is wanting the whites to be over here and the blacks to be over here. And integration is just the opposite. They should all be together. And there were some people that wanted that integration and there were some people that wanted it segregated. And there were segregation rallies and people held up signs and they chanted things. We would have never 
ever participate in a segregation rally. We were too good for that. But we didn't call out any of our friends and family who did. All it takes for evil to thrive is for good people to be silent. We, 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 we never sat on a, 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 core, a core. We never got jury duty, and we never falsely convicted a black person. Never did. We were, we were too good for that. That was against our morals, against our values. We were Christian. But when the legal system in, perpetrated injustices against blacks, we didn't say anything about it. We didn't go downtown Lexington and march with the others. I was a good person. You, you get what I'm saying? I was a good person. You, you, you're good people. All of you are good people. Some of you are so good that you remember when Pinecrest didn't allow blacks. Pinecrest swimming pool. You remember that. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Did you ever say anything about it? Did, we, did you withdraw your membership because of it? I didn't either. I didn't either. My dad worked for the Kroger company, and I did too. And dad worked in the meat department, and, and dad would be back working in the meat department, and he would take two or three pounds of ground beef and put it on that little styrofoam tray and slide it down the rack. And, and little Miss Mary down here, she was the wrapper, and she would wrap it, and she would take it and wrap it and stamp it and weigh it and stamp it and put it on the shelf. And, and, and I was working back in the meat department one day, and I did something nice for Mary. I have no clue what I did for Mary. And Mary turned to me and said, that's awful white of you. And you know what I know? You all could stand up and tell the same stories. I was a good person, raised in a good family. But on August 29th, 1993, I, I no longer became a good person. I admitted that I wasn't a good person. And that's, when you do that, you're getting close to getting saved. Uh, too many people won't get saved because they think they're good people. And you got to admit you're not a good person. And you're a sinner that's bound for a sinner's hell. And you got to drop your, your facade of goodness and come clean. And I did that. And I started looking at the race issue, not through the lens of my culture, not through the lens of my grandfather and my great-grandfather, not through the lens of the, of that I was a product of a time of what went on in Maysville, Kentucky, and in Lexington, Kentucky. The fact that we had a white hallway and we had a black hallway. I, wasn't, I, I didn't look at it in, in that kind of thing. I had to look at it in a biblical perspective. Which is the mandate for all of us who call ourselves Christian. That we come to this race issue not as a white person. We, we come to this issue not as a black person. We come to this issue not as an Hispanic person. You come to this issue as a Christian. You come to this issue as a Christian. And there are too many of us, me too, there are too many of us that come to this issue as a white Christian or a black Christian or an Hispanic Christian or an Asian Christian instead of coming to this issue as Christian. Because if I come to this issue as a black Christian, I'm tempted to change my Christianity to fit my blackness when I need to be able to change my feelings about race to fit Christianity if I'm a Christian. We need to be bibliocentric on this, centered in the Bible. We need to be theocentric, centered in God. We need to be Christ-centered, centered in Christ. But too many of us bring our culture down and lay it over top of our Christianity instead of taking our Christianity and laying it over top of our culture. And taking our Christianity and laying it over top of my whiteness. Or taking my Christianity and laying it over top of my blackness. And taking my Christianity and laying it over top of my Hispanicness and my Asianness. 
if we're Christian. If, if we're Christian. And when I look at God's word, I, I, I think of a, a, a story in Acts chapter 10 where the apostle Peter is up on the roof one day doing his devotions. And he gets a little sleepy. None of you have ever fallen asleep during your devotions, I know. He gets a little sleepy. And God gives him a vision and brings down a white sheet that had unclean animals on it. And God says, kill and eat. And Peter says, never. You can read it in Acts 10 if you want. Never. God, I... I will not take what is unclean and make it clean. I've been raised this way. This is what my fathers told me. My grandfathers told me. This is the way we've done it for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. You know what it says. These things Jewish people are not supposed to eat. And God said, don't you dare call unclean what I call clean. You see, Peter was bringing down his culture. He was bringing down his tradition. He was bringing down his, his history. and said, this is not the way we do it. And God says, no, don't you dare bring your history and bring it over what I say. Don't you dare bring your culture and bring it over what I say. So he ends up telling Peter that he needs to go to see a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And now Jews didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. Like some blacks don't have anything to do with whites. Some whites don't have anything to do with blacks. Some Hispanics don't have anything to do with blacks. Some blacks don't have anything to do with Asians. The, the Jews didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. But see, God was trying to show him in, in, in a form of animals that, 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 that nothing is unclean. And Gentiles are not unclean. And Jesus has come to be able to die for Gentiles like he came for everybody else. And says, Peter, I want you to be able to come and go talk to Cornelius. And he goes to Cornelius and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. And, 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 and the Bible says Cornelius and all his household are saved. A Gentile. You just, you, we have no clue how absolutely unbelievable that would have been. Well, Peter hangs out with Cornelius. Evidently for a couple of days. And he, he realizes these Gentiles, man. They can cook. He never had pork chops before. He never had sausage. He didn't know you could have bacon with your eggs. And Peter was into it, man. He just like me and Bob Evans, double bacon every single time. So Paul's mixing it up with the Gentiles, man. God said they're clean. So the story continues, and you go to, you go to Galatians chapter 2. And, and, and Peter is sitting there with, with all the, the Gentile friends eating those pork chops and, and, and those, that, that bacon, greasy bacon. But that bacon, man, he's just eating it up, man. He's just having a great time, arms around these Gentile friends. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 2, some people from James came. That meant they came from Jerusalem. They came from headquarters. They came from the hood. Some boys from the hood showed up. And they have, uh, they just looking at Peter here, hamming it up with the Gentiles. What do you think you're doing? The Bible says this. You can go read it all you want, Galatians chapter 2. What do you think you're doing? And the Bible says Peter got up from the Gentile table and went over to sit with the Jews. And the Bible says even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. So in walks a man who opened up the whole Western world to Christianity, the Apostle Paul. And the scripture says, Paul says, I confronted him to his face in front of the others. Oh, we need to be more politically correct than that. We need to be more loving than that. We need more tactful, more diplomatic than that. We shouldn't say that. Oh, I know it's true, but we shouldn't say... Bible, read it, read it for yourself. 
He says, I confronted him to his face in front of the others about his hypocrisy. There's racism in the Bible, friends. There's racism in the Bible. This has been a problem for as long as we've had people, and I guess we'll probably be a problem for as long as we have people. It's part of our sin nature, and that's why you can't tackle this with with secular means. This is a spiritual problem. This is a spiritual problem. You can burn down all the gas stations you want. You can be able to make all the speeches you want. You can change all the laws you want. But friends, this is a spiritual problem. It's spiritual warfare, and the devil wants us divided. And if you continue to fight on secular grounds, you won't get squat. But if the church of Jesus Christ would do what she should have done all along, we would be much farther along than we already are. Pastors have been cowards because they were afraid to offend the tithers. And they've been cowards. And they don't talk about it. Our first little church, above the doors, there was dull engraving that, have, that, that, had, that had weathered over the years and years. And it said, not, 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 you know, the name of the church was Macville United Methodist Church. But over the doors, the, the, the name used to be Methodist Episcopal Church South. Are you with me? There was a Methodist Episcopal Church North, and there was a Methodist Episcopal Church South. Why do you think so? They split over slavery. My history of Methodism professor, Dr. Kenneth Kinghorn, the foremost authority on Methodist, Methodism, at least at that time, he's died now. He said the Methodist church was so strong at the time of the Civil War that if she had not split over slavery, there would not have been a civil war. The church of Jesus Christ has dropped the ball. We have the answers. We have the answers. But we put our whiteness over top of our Christianity. We put our blackness over top of our Christianity instead of taking our Christianity and put it over our whiteness and our Christianity and put it over our blackness. And so 240 years later, we're still battling with it. We're still battling with it. I can't remember her name, but she was a sweet little 80-something-year-old lady in Antioch United Methodist Church that I pastored when I was in seminary and we were doing a Bible study on Genesis. She was a retired school teacher. That means she had to have some intelligence. She wasn't just some Yahoo from Kentucky. And as we were talking through Genesis chapter 4 and we were talking about Cain and Abel and the mark that was put on Cain, she says, I was always taught that the mark that was put on Cain made him a black person. She's taught that. Some preacher, some evangelist. Who was Cain? Cain was a murderer. And the punishment was the mark. And what was the punishment according to that preacher? That preacher? He was turned black. God forgive us. God forgive us. We got problems, friends. And we know not only have problems looking through the 240-year history of our church. We have problems coming into this very day. It's better than it was. Yes, it's better than it was. Yes, it's better than it was. Thank God. Thank God that it's better than it was. But all of the police officers that I spoke with this week agreed there's a history of the black adult male not being treated the same as the white adult male. All the white police officers agreed with that. Not like it happens every day. And I know there are bad cops. There are bad cops just like there's bad preachers and bad lawyers and bad doctors and bad businessmen. But all of them agreed there's a legacy that we have to live down. 
And for whatever it's worth, all the black folks that I talked to thought in Xenia we were ahead of the curve, that we're not dealing with some of the problems that some of our neighboring counties and towns have to deal with. But we have a problem. This last video, and I, I, part of my problem here is I could talk till 3 o'clock, and I've got to stop sometime. This last video I want to show you is again from Driving Miss Daisy. They were driving down to see Daisy's family in Alabama. And I don't know, you young people don't know this, but used to when you drive south, you didn't have exit 17, McDonald's, Burger King, Chick-fil-A, Second Shake. You didn't have that. Some of you that are older know, what did you do? You pulled off to the side of the road and you ate the sandwiches and you drank the pop that you brought with you. Right, you gray hairs? I know, I know you young people don't know that, but that's the scene here. They just pull off for a break, they're having sandwiches, and they're drinking a pop on the side of a road heading down from Atlanta to Alabama, going deeper south. There. Hey, boy. Yes, sir. What do you think you're doing with this car? This is my car, officer. Yes, ma'am. Can I see your registration, please? Any license for Yes, sir. What's his name? Wertheran? Wertham. Wertham. Never heard of that one before. What kind of name is that? It's a German derivation. German derivation. Mm-hmm. to hear an old nigger and an old Jew going down the road together. Now, ain't that a sorry sight? It's better than it was. It's better than it was. But those stories have been told from great-grandfather to grandfather to father to 18-year-old black in 2016. And when things happen in our policing and who knows what's right and wrong about the situation? Who knows? When things happen in the policing, it brings back all of those stories and all of those memories of, hey, boy, what are you doing with this car? We have problems, friends. Statistics can be able to be made to say whatever you want them to say. I know that. But I found some by a Christian Statistician George Barna, no, very few of you will know that name, but he's well, well respected by every pastor. And he does all kinds of research on, on Christianity. Let, let me look at some stats that I found you. Uh, do you live in fear of police brutality, asking Christians? White Christians say yes, 13%. Black Christians say 56%. It doesn't make any difference if you think that's right or wrong. It's the perception of the black community. You know what? Let's just say, maybe they're wrong. It's still their perception, and perception is reality. Next slide. Um, what percent agree that the Christian churches play an important role in ra racial reconciliation? 73% of, of Christians said that, that we have a role to play, an important role to play. Because we have the answer. What else do we have? Question. 
There is a lot of anger and hostility between the different ethnic and racial groups in America. This is the percentages that agreed or strongly agreed with that statement, that there's a lot of tension between the racial groups. Of all adults, 84%. Of white, 87%. Of blacks, 82%. We have a problem, friends. We have a problem. We have a problem. We can't stick our head in the sand. We can't just say, well, in the way it used to be, we need an understanding. We can't just be afraid to talk about it. We have a problem, friends. What's the next slide? Question. Racism is mostly not a statement. Racism is mostly a problem of the past, not the present. Uh, almost 50% of blacks agreed with that. That kind of probably surprised me a little bit. 39% of whites agreed with that. All adults, 42%. That, that said that racism is mostly, not totally, mostly a problem of the past. 49% of people agreed that it's mostly, which means 51% think it's still an issue. People of color are often put at a social disadvantage because of their race. 84% of people, black people agree. These are Christians. Black Christians agree. 62% of white Christians agree. 57% of Republicans. 78% of Democrats. 56% of of evangelicals, all of them added together to 67%, that said people of color are at a social disadvantage. Would you come with me and talk to two of my black friends who I looked them square in the eye and says, maybe this is racist, I don't know. You don't talk black. And they said, we've been told that before. And they went on to tell me of their phone interviews that they've had, where they were all but guaranteed the job on the phone But when they showed up at the Pizza Hut or they showed up wherever it was and they showed up in flesh and blood and they didn't look like they talked on the phone, the job was suddenly not open anymore. You can say they're lying if you want. I don't have that courage. What else do we have? Look at this. About one out of four white born-agains believe, please unfairly target people of color. About one out of four white born against. Look at the statistic. More than eight out of ten black born against feel that police unfairly target. I don't know what the truth is, but you've got Christians on one side of the issue and you've got Christians on another side of the issue. You've got eight two out of a hundred black people that feel that they're unjustly targeted. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. But that's a problem. That is their reality because that's their perception and perception is reality. We have a problem, friends. And I am not smart enough to tell you what the answers are. But I know it starts with dialogue. I know it starts with conversation. I know it's, it's, it's for you scared white people to start talking to your black friends about the issue. I know you're scared to be called a racist. I know you're scared to be, called, to be able to uh, speak honestly and tell your criticisms to the black community. You've got to drop it. Why are you scared to be called a racist? And it will only start... With dialogue. It'll only start with conversation. It'll only start with one white person and one black person being gut level honest. And I don't understand about this about the black community. And he says, I don't understand about this about the white community. But this is why we white people feel that way. And this is why we black people feel that way. And you're not getting mad at one another. You're trying to understand one another. Now, that's where it starts. And I don't know what to tell you to do because some of you don't have black friends. But you know what? Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week, there's a revival, an African-American Ministerial Association revival downtown. And I don't know anything about it. The preachers may be horrible for all I know. I don't know. But it doesn't really make any difference if, if you like the preaching or you like the singing. It doesn't make any difference if it's bad or not. You went to watch your kids play soccer and they were the worst kid on the team. <laughs> but you were only there to support them. And what if some of us went 
and just showed up. We don't have any signs, and we're not looking to, to make any big display. We just take a step. And nothing may come. It's such a puny little thing. It, in the whole scheme of racial relations to 240 years, it probably doesn't mean a thing, but it's something. It's something. It's so puny. But what about if, you, husband, you take your wife and you go? And you may, not, you, may, you, just, you may not enter into conversation with anyone. You may not know a single song that they sing. You may have to sit there for three, year, three hours because the culture of the black community and church, they say they're all day. But what about a step? What about meeting them on common ground? The common ground of Jesus Christ. Well, I could go on, but I've got to stop. Racial reconciliation is all made possible because there's been a way that we can reconcile with the Father. And the way that we can reconcile with the Father is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you've heard preachers say it, the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. And whether you're Jew or Gentile, black or white, slave or free, fat or skinny, bald or hairy, employed or unemployed, divorced or married, the ground is level with the foot of the cross. And as you come to the table this morning, that same blood that forgave you from your sins will give you the power to come to grips biblically with this racial issue. will also forgive the racism that's in my spirit, the prejudice that's in my spirit, the bias that's in my spirit, and in your spirit, if we would only own up to it. If we would only own up to it. And stop saying, well, I'm not racist. Our servers are coming to the table. Father, I need this message worse than anyone here. I've been preaching to myself and just letting these folks listen. We've got to do better on this. And Father, why can't Xenia Church of the Nazarene take the lead? Why not, Father? Would you speak to every single one of us? Would our hearts be opened? Would we not be pointing to the person to the left or the right? Well, would our hearts be open to whatever, whatever you want to say to us about this issue? In Jesus' name, amen.